Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. And also, if you're a Patreon supporter, we give away a box of books every week to one of our Patreon supporters, and we have more bonus episodes and bits and pieces. Hello, welcome to one of the Edinburgh Fringe specials of Book Shambles. Uh, just a quick note, hopefully the sound should be absolutely fine, but unfortunately what happened was we did have a studio booked, but then found out that uh, it had an extremely aggressive studio manager stroke owner, and so we found ourselves instead in a hotel recording these. So hopefully all is fine. I hope you enjoyed them. Bye-bye. And one other tiny bit of admin before the episode starts. If you hear some kind of rustling or crackling, uh, just short bursts of it uh, occasionally throughout this episode, that's got nothing to do with having to record last minute in a hotel. That's actually the sound of a bag of frozen peas on Josie's knee because uh, she hurt her knee uh, the day before we recorded these. So that's what that is. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, and today, our very special guest is the uh, podcaster, broadcaster, and improviser, and actor, uh, and writer, uh, Greg Proops. Uh, Greg, right, I'm going to start on this because this is what we're kind of talking about already before, uh, to give some people some context of uh, when we're recording this. It's during the Edinburgh Festival, but also it is just after the events that have uh, taken place in Charlottesville with uh, the death of uh, one woman and the injury of uh, numerous other people people with a car uh, uh, being driven directly into a crowd of uh, anti-fascist protesters. Um, so I want to start by, put it on the books anyway, I, I saw I, I Am Not Your Negro uh, recently, I think I've seen it since mm. we last saw each other, about James Baldwin. Um, I presume, I'm going to guess here, that you are someone who admires the work of James Baldwin. Absolutely, and I thought the picture was magnificent, beautifully put together, and uh, I thought the director did a great job uh, pulling all of the... Uh, the different quotes and, and setting up the the way he is talking about Medgar Evers, Martin Luther King, uh, and now I'm blanking on the third one, which makes me sound like I didn't no, see it's the Malcolm movie. X. No, no, Malcolm no, no, X. No. Yeah. If uh, you if you blanked on Medgar Evers, but that's the thing that impressed me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, I've been in Mississippi this year, and my family and my mother's side's all from Mississippi, and um, we went to the museum in uh, Jackson which is all about the civil rights struggle. And there's a Medgar Evers room. Uh, there's also uh, James Meredith room, the first uh, black student allowed into a university in Mississippi, which was 1963. Now I'm 57 years old, so I was three years old when he was admitted. So what I always remind people of is this is an ancient history. Mm. Um, and as my friend Camo Bell says, um, uh, who's a comic from America and is black, and I've known him for a long time, um, you know when was a bad time for racism in America? Earlier today. Because people always go, oh, it, you know, it happened 50 years ago, it happened 100 years ago. And it's like, no, it's happening right now all the time. Uh, so, yes, I am a huge fan of James Baldwin. And I think all the things he said uh, are so cogent after all this time. And he talks about racists being full of pain. And that's the pain they're inflicting on everybody else. So I kind of love his take on it. And he's someone who went to France to escape the racism of America and then felt that he had to come back and take part in the civil rights movement, you know. So I think what he has to say is unbelievably profound. Also, you get a chance to see him speak in the movie. Mm -hmm. And when he speaks, he's unbelievably eloquent yeah. and articulate. Well, he's but, a beautiful poetic writer as well. Like, you, you think if, like, there's so many elements to him, I, I think. Uh, 
as a writer and as a speaker and you sort of forget that like oh yeah this guy writes lyrically and yeah. speaks beautifully yeah well he's a novelist isn't he but I think uh, his, as novels as brilliant as they are the reportages and the essay I find that his essays are to the bone you know the essays really capture what's going on and speaking of that earlier this year we were in London and we were saying a flat and 1984 was there and I hadn't read it in a long time so I reread that uh, to see if Orwell was right about everything and uh, of course he was uh, maybe a little bit wrong on one or two things but uh, you know uh, unlike Huxley who's obsessed with biology and chemistry and genetics uh, Orwell sticks to the nuts and bolts of using technology to persecute people mm. uh, and torture them and his assertion that um, power is the power to inflict pain on other people seems to be a fairly decent description of what's going on, at least in the United States right now. Uh, having elected a white supremacist, um, their, their, their whole goal is to inflict pain on people. Um, they don't have... Uh, Orange 45 campaigned on, he actually said through the whole campaign, I'm going to give health care to everyone which is exactly the opposite of what they intend mm. to do. They intend on stripping healthcare from everyone. So mm. in an Orwellian sense, if you're going to talk about mm. doublespeak, and uh, uh, he uses doublespeak constantly, uh, and he contradicts himself every other sentence because he has no facts. Mm. Um, it's a little less organized than the Ministry of Truth in the book. Uh, they seem slightly more organized. And then the word that I always come back to in Orwell is duckspeak, which is, people reiterating orthodox nonsense. And I think that that's what you hear on telly and that's what you see on the internet, especially on Twitter. People defending fascism, people defending terror uh, when the terror is from the side that they're for. Uh, like we were discussing earlier, uh, a, mo a mosque was uh, vandalized in Minneapolis earlier this week and uh, 45 said nothing about that. Of course. Uh, but then of course, uh, when London, you know, when, when uh, uh, everything happened in London a month or two ago, um, he decried that immediately mm -hmm. because he thought they were Muslims. Anytime he thinks it's a Muslim, then it's bad. Anytime it's a white person, hey, 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 let the man talk. You know? That's yeah. a really ugly thing to see, isn't it? That kind of priapism that occurs on social media when people are hopeful that an event is going to have been caused by uh you know someone who Escape may be considered a muslim terror mm -hmm. oh brilliant oh oh good a truck's gone into it i mean bad you know it's really bad but the truck oh oh the truck was just a drunk white finnish guy or whatever you know and then the, yeah. and that's a very I mean, I find it interesting when you mention about Orwell and Huxley, and of course, there's always been that interesting debate. And mm. I was amusing ourselves to death, which I bet you've read, haven't you, Neil Post? I haven't, no, but I know that which book it, you're it's, about. And he kind of spends the whole book. He, he was a very interesting. Uh, I, I really like Neil Postman stuff. And uh, amusing ourselves to death, he talks about whether it's Orwell or whether it's Huxley, he said, or, or is it both? Is it the fact that for some people it is an Orwellian future, for others of us who manage to have, you know, the, through the, the fortune of birth or whatever it might be, but more often than not the fortune of birth, the luck of therefore being able to immerse ourselves in a pampered society so we don't notice anything else mm -hmm. because we're so busy on Instagram. So for some people it's 1984, for some people it's Brave New World. I don't know. I don't know what you consider. I think it's a combo platter and Zamat Yen and we as well, which is the kind of the you know the the take on the totalitarian Russian state where people get lobotomized if they are, are too free thinking and whatnot. Um, I, I think it's a combo platter because Huxley was certainly right about the amount of drugs everyone takes and hmm. that, that the drugs are the thing that keep everybody sedated and stupid. Um, uh, 
uh, what's his name? Anthony Burgess wrote a novel called 1985, and Anthony Burgess asserts that Orwell's fallacy is wrong, that he thinks the proletariat will rise up one day. Now, Anthony Burgess wasn't a proletariat writer, in particular, uh, and then 1985 takes place in London in 1985, and there's roving street gangs, and the Arabs are building a giant mosque in the center of London, and everyone watches TV, and um, cigarette packs have desiccated lungs on them, which they eventually did 30 years later. See, that's what I would do. If I was in government, I would read the dystopian fiction of 30 years previous and just make loads of policies <laughs> deliberately just to freak people right. out. I'd be like, what? And, and I would never let people know that that's what I'd done. Because loads of sci-fi anticipates a lot of this oh, as absolutely. well. William Gibson and whatnot. And uh, even, you know, even people who are trying to anticipate it actively anticipate. I think Ian Banks, um, in all of his culture books, the culture represents us so well because they have benign liberals and they go around the universe and they try to convert everyone into benign liberals, forgetting that benign liberals don't convert people. They simply let people live. But mm -hmm. the culture's so goddamn cocksure that they're living the right way mm -hmm. when they meet other societies that are slightly less uh, uh, refined or more primitive than them. They absolutely try to assert their authority over them, even though the mandate of the culture is, hey, everybody's <laughs> groovy. And people change their genders within his books and you can drug because you have glands in your where you're born you have glands that you can go like I want to feel speedy now so you gland a little of this and you drink a little of that and it gets you where you're going so that he combines the uh, entertaining ourselves to death thing I don't know if you ever read the player of games or whatever where the guy is an expert game player and really his job is to just be this awesome game player so he's sent to a planet where they play a game for life and death where the planet's on fire and it burns constantly in a big circle around the planet. And the game is, um, we, we stand on a board, like a chessboard or whatever, and then eventually the bets are like, I bet your left eye. I bet your right arm. And so he's forced, coming from what I always think of as Marin County, where I'm from the Bay Area, right? <laughs> Marin County is the ultimate white people enclave of sharing county liberals. They don't hate people, they're nice, there's no black people. And it's... You know, they would never say they're bad people, but they don't have any black people. And George Lucas, a couple of years ago, wanted to build some low-income housing there, and people started to freak out. These benign rich people who lived there had a panic attack over it and mm -hmm. went, you can't move black people in our... And he was like, if you don't let me do this, I'm going to buy even more stuff and build even more stuff for <laughs> black people. Because he's married to a black woman. And... Uh, that always made me laugh, that part of that Ian Banks registered that so well. Uh, that there's a culture where your computer floats next to you and talks to you. You live in a beautiful, you know, they go to these giant concerts and they go to games and they really have a leisure white people life. And then they run into other cultures where people still stab each other and have sex in alleys. And they're like, ugh. Mm. And then we better change them. <laughs> you were talking about the player of games. It, it, could you sort of recommend a little, maybe a few of them that people could... Uh, use as a startup app for reading Ian Banks. Oh, Ian Banks? Yeah, I'd say uh, that one. And consider Phlebas. I, I would not read Fearsome Engine. Fearsome Engine is written in Patois. It's spelled F-E-E-R-S-U-M-E-N-J-U-N. -E -E and the entire book's written that way. So it's very hard going. Like, <laughs> you have to decipher every word. It's worse than Clockwork Orange, which is written in NADSAT, right? But at least that, that has a glossary. Mm. Uh, I say consider Phlebas. Uh, it's kind of a space adventure. And then there's one called um, Accession, where uh, 
the culture is living its benign life and it's, you know there's two or three other giant cultures in the universe that it runs into all the time and all of a sudden an anomaly comes out of the fucking universe and comes down and they're even more advanced than anyone ever anticipated they don't use uh, the cultures the ships run themselves the culture that intercedes into the universe runs on the grid the power of the universe like they don't even have a ship we don't have ships we just go and we just are and of course the culture's panicked and the people who intervene kind of go like don't even don't start with us. <laughs> don't start with your white people shit because we're beyond that now so I think those three are really good um, obviously his regular novels are mm. quite good as well but those are the, those are E&M mm. yes he said something very interesting speaking of books Jennifer went to see him speak years ago at the festival here and I got to interview him a couple of times but one of the people in the audience got up to him and said something that's unbelievably pertinent uh, regarding books, and, and especially since we're speaking about it in English. They said, what makes you so successful as an author? And he said, I write in English. Huh. He goes, I have a friend who's a Finnish author. He's like, four million people speak Finn. He goes, I write in English. The whole world reads English. And even if they don't, it's translated. Mm. And I thought, that is absolutely uh, a deep advantage for J.K. Rowling or whoever you can think of. Mm. Uh, um, and like that. I think it's fantastic having a book show in Edinburgh. Is there a city that has more authors per capita? Yeah, I know. It's incredible. Yeah, we were talking about, and just also the greatest publisher, Canongate, as well. Yeah, right? it's been recognised as a literature city. I saw that in the station and I was like, very good, very well, good. See, I like Sherlock Nottingham Holmes and Harry one. Potter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 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 and I'm, I'm missing a few. Oh, well, you're thinking uh, of Robert Louis C. You've got, you got Jacqueline Hyde Jacqueline running Hyde across the, the rooftops. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, characters that, even the people who are illiterate, and believe me, I play for a lot of them. I'm sure you do too. Uh, when you do improv, you sometimes ask for books. And no one does any books anymore. They, uh, in America, it's uh, Fifty Shades of Grey and um, Harry Potter. Grown-ups yell Harry Potter. Huh. And, uh, and then if you push them a little, it'll be mm, To Kill a Mockingbird or The Great Gatsby, which in my experience, at my age, those were college 101 yeah. or high school. I read 1984, I think, when I was 13. Or 14. And uh, uh, everybody knows, even amongst them, who Sherlock Holmes is, who Harry Potter is, who Jekyll Hyde is, and who Hamlet is. Even if they've never read Hamlet or seen it, mm. everybody knows who Shakespeare is. Everybody knows what Shakespeare sounds like, even if they've never seen a Shakespeare play. There are certain literary things that transcend literacy. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah. <laughs> if you know Sherlock Holmes yeah. and you go... <gasps> You came in, you've been walking in the mud and you, you were a colonel in the guards and, you know, and it, 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 you know, that's how powerful those characters are, I think. Well, I think ja- Jacqueline Hyde's an interesting one because I can't remember if we've talked about this before, but I hadn't read Jacqueline Hyde until probably about three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, seen all the versions, Spencer yeah. Tracy, Frederick March, all that. And it was really fascinating to go, oh, the, the story, the novella is totally different yeah. because it's a mystery. It's a mystery about why. Why has Dr. Jackal got that awful Mr. Hyde hanging around his yeah. house? And so in the films, you know almost from the start that he's made a potion. Exactly. And, and right then it goes, and then I found out yeah. it was Mr. Hyde. You know, that's a, I think I just never got around to it because I thought, well, I've seen so many versions. Then you go, ah, it's a totally different, or reading things like Frankenstein, which we think we know the whole, and even when people try and do versions of it it will never be the same as this collection of journals and letters and all of this kind yeah. of you know um i wanted to go back a little bit to dystopian because mentioning well think of uh margaret atwood 
and yeah. also thing the Philip K. Dick, where two of the big shows at the moment are Man in the High Castle, which of course is an alternative America, right. where at least half of it is uh, is run by the Nazis in, in the alternative reality. So you, it's an alternative reality. Thank heavens for that, eh? And uh, <laughs> and Handmaid's Tale. I know a lot of people who you know now the adaptations on. Uh, TV are kind of going I don't think I can face it mm. it's just it's my wife won't watch it I watch it I watched it largely with my boyfriend and I found it a very like intensely distressing and enervating and like uh, that horrible challenging experience and I loved it I thought it was a wonderful show but I, I found myself like really analysing his reactions and getting very angry at him when he obviously didn't feel the same visceral kind of uh, pain mm-hmm. that I did I was really like what you obviously don't understand this thing that's been communicated no it felt very important for that but also kind of sad that you know these things that are such kind of deep-rooted female experiences that are being kind of shown and stuff and fears and stuff didn't quite like translate in the same way because how could they and stuff but yeah it's amazing isn't it mm. the, the gender split is just no, I said to my wife, do you want to watch it? It's so popular, everyone's watching it. And she went, no. Ha! We're living it. I don't want to see it. I don't yeah. want to see a fictional rendition of it. We went to an abortion clinic in Mississippi a month ago. It's the last one in Mississippi. Uh, the one in Louisville, the last one in the state of Kentucky is fixing to close. The governor's fixing to close it. So we are at Handmaid's Tale in the United States. We're months away from having whole states with millions of people have no recourse for women to get an abortion, which is legal. Abortion is legal in the United States. It is not illegal. And how's, like, I'm sorry to be a bit ignorant, but, like, was it the case that 20 years ago there was that provision there were maybe, like, 10 The privilege was always there for rich people, and the privilege was always there for rich white people. Um, What we're talking about, particularly in states like Mississippi and Kentucky, is uh, black, poor women of color having to avail themselves to this, almost all of whom have several children already. We're not talking about single girls who went out to a party and whatever, and, oh, gosh, it's a painful decision. We're talking about... I have six kids and I make $18,000 a year or $8,000 a year and I live in a trailer. And I can't access birth control anyway because it really uh, There is no birth control and my, my, the men in my life are absent or errant and blah, blah, blah. And uh, you go there and there's a white men standing outside screaming at them that they're going to go to hell. And so I can understand my wife, why my wife didn't watch it on a much smaller level. The other day I was... Uh, telling her how proud I was that I was able to convince a friend of mine to do something who's a middle-aged man by couching the way I phrased it in an email um, I wonder if you'd mind this and what have you thought of this and I wonder would you mind this instead of saying directly let's not do this let's do this <laughs> because I knew he would not fucking respond if I did I know this person I know in a long time and I know that if I said we need and then we're talking about a comedy show here we're not talking about important mm-hmm. issues we're talking about the structure of a comedy show if I had done that, if we should do this, we should do this, he would have gone, no, just being told mm. to do something. And she goes, you know what? I'm tired of hearing you tell me this because this is what I have to do every fucking day in my life. I literally knew that's exactly what she was going to say. Yeah. That's like how women have to operate yeah. all the time. And like, I don't want to talk about like, obviously not all men and obviously not all situations, no, etc. That's a given. Yeah, no, <laughs> but it, believe me, it's not on yeah. online. But like... <laughs> Like, it is, it's so funny, like, the amount of kind of... And I see it in the way that friends of mine who are women behave online, you know, even 
on something like Twitter where it's very brief and you're giving your opinions there's so much more please and thank yous and I think and mm-hmm. oh I'd like to suggest or whatever you know and then the difference between the people who then respond who are like you're a fucking idiot blah 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 it's, it's astonishing isn't it yeah well I mean you know uh, the, the giantest example that I can think of was the last election uh, Hillary came out and said this is my position on things and here's a detailed plan of how I'll deal with it and he came out and went trust me only I can do it believe me believe me trust me mm-hmm. and Mexicans are rapists and everybody cheers women need to be punished for boy yay everybody cheers no plan no nothing and now you can see the chaos in this rule and uh, no one believed her I mean obviously they did he cheated to win but the media is fully supportive of this at all times there is no time in my opinion that the media is off the hook. And I don't mean fake news and all that jazz. I do believe some things the media says because there are honest people in the media. But the false equivalency that dominates now is just astonishing to me. What I'd like to know is, would you recommend any particular books about American politics that Mike gave, because obviously most of our listeners will be British, and like, that you would really think are like elucidating on the situation? Well, Michael Gay, Dyson wrote a book called, Tyson, I'm sorry, is a, a a minister, and I don't normally recommend ministers, but he writes many good books, and he's wrote, r- written one last year called Chairs We Cannot Stop, and it's about white people. He's black, and um, the opening chapter and the premise of the book is that whiteness is an invention. The universe does not require white people. White people invented themselves. We invented our own privilege. We invented the idea of being white. We invented everything that goes with it, and... Therefore, we have to understand that everyone else has to live in this world where we've invented this giant thing of whiteness. And, of course, in America, having brought in black people as slaves and then abrogating ourselves of all responsibility of that now, and you hear it all the time, oh, I'm sick of white guilt, and oh, I didn't have anything to do with it. And it's like, if you went to a university, say, for instance, in South Carolina, just for instance... Um, that university was built by slave owners using slaves. So you have the advantage of having gone to a place that was built by slaves. So fuck you. You have to availed yourself of slavery. Um, New York City was built by slaves. The White House was built by slaves. Um, the railroad that connected uh, San Francisco to the rest of the country was built by Chinese coolies and who were tossed in ditches when they died. And the women were used up as prostitutes and then literally thrown away. And so the idea that somehow America was this white guys in a wagon rolling across the thing, taming the wilderness with a six gun, is so much fucking bullshit that I can't even begin to get my head around it. And I run into people who I think are wildly intelligent and perceptive. Comedians who uh, just can't get their head around it. They can't get their head around that they're a guy and that gives them an advantage. They can't get their head around that they're a white guy and that gives them an advantage. They. They just, ref- either they refuse to see it or it's not obvious enough or, like you say... And I've struggled too. That's the thing. Is yeah, that thing, right? which is... Yeah, everyone struggles. We're human beings. It's mm. not easy knowing your life is finite and all those things. Yeah. But that, because someone was telling me about that, they were talking about when they used to go into the corner shop and when they would go in, uh, because they were black and probably white area, the way they would get looked at. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, like all were checked. And, and the guy went, Yeah, I, I used to get looked at in the corner shop. He went, and she was trying to explain, she went, Not in the same way. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't the same, you know, it was uh-huh. like, and I think that is a very interesting that. 
the refusal to it there was a someone i was interviewing uh she wrote a book called the hot topic all about uh climate change uh very good uh, with uh, david king who used to be the government uh science officer and uh she said uh this week she went well of course technology meant we no longer needed slavery now that was an eye opener i never really thought of that but until you have the machines once you have machines you don't need the people who drag the logs, harvest, whatever else it might be, because the machines can do it. But until machines, all of the, uh, the economy is based on having to have slaves. For instance, uh, our phones that we love so much and that we're on all the time, those are built by slaves in China. So the idea that there is no slavery is uh, kind of ridiculous. There's tons of slavery. Uh, there's wage slavery. There's, there's literal slavery. There's sexual slavery. Um, the, all the advantages we enjoy are because people in other countries are slaves to our needs. Uh, the reason why we're able to drink a bottle of water and then chuck it and not give a shit if we finish it is because we live here. If you lived in Equatorial Guinea, you would not be chucking that bottle of water away as freely. Uh, and if you were a slave working in China at an Apple factory to make iPhones, you might not think the iPhone was as nifty. I'm always reminding people in America that everyone doesn't have a computer. You know, because my crowd's white, mostly, mm -hmm. and young. And I'll say to them, remember, go places where poor people are. They don't have a phone. They have a crappy old phone that doesn't take pictures or anything and barely works. And they don't have a computer, and they're not on it all day. They watch television, like old-fashioned, and they read papers, and they listen to the radio because it's free. Mm -hmm. And they don't live their life the way you do. They eat shitty food because they can't go to the... Whole Foods and buy a bag of spinach that's already been washed and shit like that. That's why they're fat. And, you know, so... What's the term? The term's like food deserts, isn't it? I'm so sorry. I've, I've twisted my knee, so I keep having to, like, lie back because I can't sit forward. Do you want to cut real, real. <laughs> um, But um, it, what's it called? Food deserts. Is that the term about, basically... And it blew my mind when I read about it, that, like... Which is so naive, I suppose. But um, just the fact that there are parts of America where there's no way you can get to in any convenient distance to buy fresh food. Huh? Like, uh, um, it still astonishes me. Travel, if you travel through rural America, it's a pretty wild uh, scene, you know. I mean, uh, it's junk food, and it's cars, and it's poor, and um, if you go to Mississippi, you can see third world poverty, and right in the United States, houses up on blocks, you know, ratty rat holes and this is near big giant medical centers and rich people and, and places you can go that have fabulous farm to table you know meals and the whole enchilada it's all there um my friend uh scott lives in uh georgia and georgia's pretty affluent um for the south and i remember he said to me he was listening to the mississippi podcast we did and he goes what my first thought of when you drive into mississippi is the roads are shitty and there's no lights. You drive in Georgia and the freeways have lights and the roads are smooth and then you get into Mississippi and it's two lanes and there's no lights at all. And this is a state in the United States, the richest place and blah, 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 blah. And it's institutionalized poverty and racism. Uh, we didn't, you know, the, uh, this is off of literature a little bit, but HBO, the cats who did Game of Thrones for HBO, the two white guys who are very wealthy indeed. Their families are wealthy. I'm not just saying they're wealthy from doing Game of Thrones. Um, Want to do a new show called Confederate. And it's the same premise as High Castle. What if the South 
didn't lose the Civil War, and what if there's still slavery? And there's been a backlash like you wouldn't believe mm-hmm. against it. Of course, HBO is like, well, you guys do Game of Thrones, you're golden, do what you like, baby. No. And they brought in some black producers, right? There's black producers on the show who are trying to defend it. And of course, people are having a heart attack over this. Look at what happened yesterday in the United States and tell me that the South didn't win the war. Look at who's president and tell me that the Confederacy didn't win the war. Um, but also, we, it's about what stories you choose to tell. Because yeah. if they're choosing to tell that, they're still going to be showing people being brutalised, mm-hmm. who already have to suffer pre- uh, police brutality, already have to deal with all kinds of shit. Uh, like it's it's adding to the well of like oh, it, and something like that. I can't help but think that a white supremacist would enjoy that fantasy. Yeah. My like, first thought was. Yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, no, but it's like, who is that really written for? You well, know, even if written as a horror story, what you're making, the, the actors who are having to embody that, I'm like, nah, man. There was a mockumentary really done, wasn't there? It was a 90-minute mm-hmm. film. I can't remember its title now, which was this mockumentary of kind of, this is, this is basically exactly that right. same thing. Well, didn't That's Daphne du Maurier do a book years ago called Rural Britannia? I don't think I ever read it. Well, the same, well, not no, the same no. premise as The High Castle, but... And Philip Roth did one a few years ago, too, where... Lindbergh's the hero because Lindbergh was a thoroughgoing Nazi. Lindbergh is a giant American hero. Really? Yeah. Thoroughgoing, like Prince Edward. Ha! I mean, that big of a Nazi. Like he <laughs> adored Hitler and he didn't care for Jews. And Bruno Hauptmann, the German who got. How did he manage to sort of, what's the word, detoxify his? It took a long time. I mean, he was just, it was the 20s, you know, and when he did his heroic feat of landing, they realized when they took him on the big tour after that, that he didn't really have any personality to speak of. He was a cold fish. They'd bring him to places and try to make a hero out of him, and he really wasn't able to hold down the crowd. He was hardly uh, Babe Ruth or Jack Dempsey or any of the great, you know, American stars of that era who really were charismatic. And the difference was, of course, Babe Ruth and Jack Dempsey were from ghettos fought their way out of the ghetto to be professional athletes and you know like Muhammad Ali we have America loves the story of you grew up poor you fought your way out but of course that story is failing because it's very difficult to grow up poor and fight your way out we recently had a president our previous one and our other previous democratic president Bill Clinton who both did fight their way out of being from single mother homes and no advantage whatsoever, and because of their sheer excellence, force of will and drive, were able to make themselves wealthy and accomplished. I think of things like Greg Palace's book, The the Best Democracy Money Can Buy. Why is there a narrative where, I don't know how how true it is, I mean, it's a very well-argued book, and I think, I presume it had an effect on Michael Moore's film that seems... Oh, very much so, But, 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 you know, Greg Palace kind of shows uh, the thieving of... And an election, the first Bush election, yeah. and yet very quickly that becomes, I'll get over it, maybe that happened, oh look it doesn't really matter now, let's move on. Yeah. Yeah. Which and was literally a turning point for human history because you had someone who was willing to fight climate change or someone who was willing to begin the war on terror. Uh-huh. And that was the options and he stole uh-huh. the election. And that's what, like I'm not a conspiratorial person but when I think about that I'm like, of course they stole that election. The they thing is most conspiracies yeah, are actually in plain sight the conspiracy theorists they go for conspiracies which are just nonsense right. because Spacious. it's as if it doesn't show how smart you are 
because Palace will just, you know, deliver this thing. And he goes, there's a great story of when he started to, to look at uh, how people have been removed from the electoral register, the different things that have been done in states where they went, oh, hang on a minute, we have got too many people of colour voting in that state, that'll be a Democrat state, let's take and remove those people. And he goes to, I can't remember whether it was NBC, I can't remember which station it was, and he said, look, I've got all this stuff. And this was still while the recounts were going on. And uh, they rang him back two days later and went, oh, we can't run with this, it's, it's rubbish. Yeah. And he went, what do you mean it's rubbish? They went, oh, we... we uh, talked to Jeb Bush's office he said it's not true and you go uh, sorry mm-hmm. you, oh you talked to one of the people involved and ah uh, okay it's like right. saying yeah we talked to the murderer and he said he was in another country That's oh it. okay the only thing that gives me hope to carry on in the morning is as Michael Chabon the author said the other day I'm optimistic and they said why and he went because every day I wake up and I think Trump will be dead <laughs> that's where we're at with optimism now isn't uh, this what we were saying like but, why this, like why haven't this this was last night when I was drunk with my friends I was like here but why hasn't like the FBI or the CIA I don't really understand well enough but why hasn't one of those like taking them out taking them out you mean like they did with JFK now we're into conspiracy here. Well, this is it. I'm not a conspiratorial human being. You should be though because it is going on uh, what is going to happen the reality of it is um uh, James Comey made some terrible moves and, uh, and, and, and dropping her email bomb a week before the election did not help at all and may have actually thrown the election. Then he said he was nauseated at the thought that he interfered in it. It was like, well, you weren't as nauseated as you were misogynistic because you were bound and determined to fuck her over. But how could he be that obtuse? Because he's a white guy in power who's eight feet tall, literally eight feet tall. And like James Comey's almost seven feet tall. He's like six foot eight or whatever. And, uh, and has been in power and really uh, the FBI was founded by a white supremacist named J. Edgar Hoover, who they had to force them to have black agents. And that was only 30, 40 years ago. And the FBI's whole raison d'etre has been to spy on Americans, not to keep security internationally. That's the CIA and and the NSA and all those other organizations. The FBI was, you may remember when 9-11 happened, three different FBI field agents from three different offices who were women filed reports saying there is going to be a major act of terror. And it was handed into the director of the FBI who discounted them out of hand. Mm. And so the act of terror happened and the FBI was wholly responsible for puking back up those, you know, things. They were on the cover of Time magazine as heroes. The three women agents were like, we tried to tell you this was going to happen. They were women. Uh, so this is a, the FBI has a long history of suppressing anything good that could ever come. As you know, they kept complete tabs on Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Uh, they conspired and, and, and Malcolm X and Martin Luther King's, you know, the fact that James Earl Ray had money and was able to run after he killed Martin Luther King, having no visible means of support or a job or anything like that. I mean, I want like, to go down the rabbit hole here. Here's what's really true. The investigation that's going on right now, 45 and his crew, is a continuing apace. And there will be indictments and... Uh, uh, um, uh, grand juries indicting people in the next few months. You'll see within the next year, year and a half, uh, all the players that you see in this big thing, Flynn and, you know, excuse me, uh, Flynn and McMaster and Manafort and all them, they're in big trouble. They're in big legal trouble. And they can say they're not, and they can say this is a fake investigation, and they can say Russia's fake, but it's not. None of it's fake at all. It's all very, very real, and real legal things are happening. It just takes forever because the wheels of justice grind very slowly, as we say in the United States. Um, but in a year or two, there will be a very different scenario. 
Part of why he's going, I'm going to bomb North Korea, part of why he's saying, I'm going to attack Venezuela, America is going to attack Venezuela, according to him, this is two days ago, um, uh, is that they're getting close. They're getting closer, getting closer. And they're getting close, meaning his son-in-law, Jared, meaning his son, Donald Jr., you know. God, Donald Jr. releasing the uh -huh. And I mean, that's how close it is. So he won't be indicted because he's a big fish. And as lawyers will tell you, or any prosecutor will tell you, the only reason you go after a big fish and really put the clamp on them is if you think they're going to bolt. Well, he can't bolt because mm -hmm. he's tethered to the White House. Mm -hmm. So everyone else can't bolt either because they're, you know, either you stand and fight or you go to Russia. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you, you flee. And then you might not be allowed to flee. But um, I predict an enormous uh, shitstorm and all kinds of legal ramifications. Whether the 25th Amendment gets invoked and we impeach this fucker, I don't know. I couldn't tell you that. Um, I think they're going to do everything they can to protect him. Um, but the people around him are going to drop one by one. And when they do, what they'll do is squeal. They will not stand tall and take the hit for him and go to jail. They will try to throw the next person under the bus. And as you've seen, his modus operandi is to throw everyone under the bus. He's already thrown Flynn under the bus. He's already thrown Manafort under the bus. He's already thrown his son under the bus. Remember he wrote the thing where he said, oh, say this, that it was about adoption or whatever. Trump actually wrote that for his son, and then it was released. And so he's willing to basically throw everyone under the bus. But eventually the bus will stop. And, uh, I mean, you know, this is very cynical stuff. Uh, but it also, you know, I lived through Nixon, and it took a year and a half for it him to be brought to ground, as it were, and then they gave him the option, right? And so he didn't get impeached, he resigned. Mm. And then the next president, whom he had appointed, by the way, who was never elected, pardoned him immediately. So this can happen too. We have, we've run out of time already. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, no. It was supposed good. to be about uh, literature. Uh, <laughs> we covered some books. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Greg. Uh, listen to Greg Proops is a brilliant podcast as well, which he's going to be recording some. Who? What are you, what are you doing on Wednesday? Uh, Wednesday, five forty-five. The Gilded Balloon in the Wine Bar. Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, that's probably going to be in the past by the time this goes out. Never mind. The lesser. I'll be in London Australia. on the eighteenth and nineteenth at the Soho Theatre. Brilliant. Uh, Josie, how are the peas on your knees? Um, I've been shifting them somewhat. I think the spelling has gone down a little bit. I just can't believe it. I'm I'm, I'm too young for this shit. No, it's a real pity. Right. I think you picked it up off me. I've accidentally somehow given you age. Uh, thanks. Bye. <laughs> and as usual, thank you to all our listeners and especially our Patreon supporters who make all of this possible. And today's Patreon supporters we'd like to thank are Michael Eaton, Julie... Paul Murray, David Watterson, Emma Pierce, Alistair Simmons, Tom Godfrey, and Russell Parker. And this week's Box of Books winner is Siobhan Williams. Congratulations, Siobhan. If you drop us an email to contact at cosmicshambles.com, we will get your prize out to you. And remember, if you'd like to check out the reading list for this episode or any of the other episodes and uh, the reading lists and listen to all of those, uh, you can do that at cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles. 
And a couple of things we haven't mentioned for a while. If you are enjoying the podcast, if you could take a couple of minutes, actually it probably takes a couple of seconds, to give us a five-star rating and a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show, that really helps us out. And also sign up to the Cosmic Shambles Network mailing list. You'll find how to do that on the homepage at cosmicshambles.com. Just scroll down, you'll see a mailing list option there, which will give you all the news about the new things that are happening on the network and also uh, advance warning on some very special things we've got coming up soon as well. Not advance warning. That makes it sound like they're bad. They're good things. Uh, uh, Like early notice. You'll be the first people to find out if you're on the mailing list. That's what I'm trying to say. And I should mention as well, as Robin said at the end of the episode, do check out Greg Proops' brilliant podcast. It's called The Smartest Man in the World, and that's available on all your usual podcasting platforms, and there is a wealth of back episodes for you to dive into there once you're up to date with Book Shambles. So thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back with a new episode once again next week. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Mm-hmm.